Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Amen. Thank you, Alex. All right, so we've already just recapped, broadly speaking, the the topics that we've covered from fellowship to the fruit of the Spirit to the gifts of the the Spirit. Um, Today we are going to talk about church authority and discipline. This whole module circles around the idea of the church and various... uh, uh, Broadly speaking, we're talking about things related to the church. So today we're going to talk about the authority of the church and we're going to talk about the discipline of the church. And then next week we're going to finish by talking about the church's worship. So that will be the end of the module. And then uh, we're going to actually have two weeks in a row where we are meeting in a large group format, and then we'll start the cycle again, and you guys will move on to wherever Drew points you to next. Yeah. Uh, At the end, yeah. Um, In last week's small group lesson, we were directed to read a passage that's quoted in Hebrews from a psalm. Uh, a psalm that should be very familiar to all of you. We sing a couple different arrangements of it on a fairly regular basis at church. And that psalm is Psalm 8. And um, I was thinking about the idea of authority and, and, and the church, and I thought this would be a helpful psalm to read to let our minds uh, start thinking about this topic. So I'm going to read it for us. This is Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens, and from the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, you, and you crown him with glory and with majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. What does Psalm 8 teach us about the origin, the source of authority? What's in that psalm that helps us understand anything about authority in the world? Because it's a given that it is in the world, right? We live in a world where you cannot escape authority. So having said that, having just opened our eyes and seen that that is a reality, what does psalm... I know I didn't tell you to turn there, but... There's a couple lines that should stick out. Yeah, Jonathan. You see that God created all things Yeah. So he's he's created all things and then he's just say it again louder. Okay, yeah. That's right. So he's created all things, created man, and then he's given to man 
authority. He has shared his divine authority as God with men. What were you going to say, Jay? I was just going to say Jonathan had to take all the answers in the song. It's okay. There's more. <laughs> no. Okay, so, but those are the those are the uh, those are the um, those are the two we'll go with. Okay, this is this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches this not just in Psalm eight, but all throughout the Scripture, all throughout the Scripture, it talks about authority, and it and it it says in one way or another the same two things that Jonathan has alluded to. God has created the world in this way. Thus, he has the right to give his, he is authority. He is the ultimate authority, right? He has created all things. There's nothing outside of him. So if he's created something, he has the right to do with whatever he created, whatever he wants, right? Romans, the potter can do whatever he wants with the clay. And one of the things that he's chosen to do with the clay, with man, is to give, share his authority with, with mankind. Okay, so uh, what are some passages you might think of when thinking about God's authority and being, him sharing it with man? Do any jump out at you? There's a variety, Old and New Testament. Yeah, true. Okay, which says, what's the, I mean, you don't have to read it, but what's the nature of it speaking to? Okay, perfect, yeah, great, great. Okay, what's another place? Hey guys, welcome. We're talking about authority in the world, how it was a given, share, authority is shared from God to man. And now we're talking about passages in Scripture that communicate that truth. All right, what else? Yeah. Okay, great, yeah. You said Adam named the animals? It's a really interesting point. I find that one a really interesting because... We think about the, we just had the, the, the men's conference and we talked about him creating the world and, and creating Adam and then saying, you know, go and subdue. Um, and naming, I think, is, I don't know if it's part of, it's probably, it is part of subduing, but I think that one's a great one. And it's really interesting. It's so clear that God is sharing his authority in that passage because what came right before it? You're, okay, this is, guess what's on my mind. God created day and ca- called it, uh, God created light and called it day, and he created darkness and he called it night. So you have, right before Adam, God creating and naming. And very quickly after God sets the precedent of him and his authority creating something and naming it, he creates other things, and he calls Adam to name those things. So thanks very, very much. There's many passages we could go to. I know I'm throwing questions at you, and it's early. Um, we'll go with the, the Romans and, and Genesis, because we do need to move on. But I think that that's a great one, Chris. Thanks for bringing it up. I think that's a great picture of God sharing his authority with men. All authority comes from God, as Drew said. Uh, this idea, though, that all authority comes from God runs contrary to secular belief. So we think about authority, and if we're Christians, we need to think about authority based on what the Bible teaches, because the Bible is truth. The Bible is ultimate authority in our lives. It is true. 
And we live in a world of sin, fallenness, where there's lots and lots of lives. Lies. And lives, but lies. Um, <clears throat> the idea that all authority comes from God is very countercultural to those that uh, have a secular worldview. So if you were to ask a non-Christian, a pagan, where authority comes from, what would they likely say? From yourself, okay. Would they say anything? Be- I, think that that's, I think that that's true. Um, what else might they say? Uh, pardon me? Okay, elected leaders. They could, I mean, there's a wide variety of things that they could say here, right? Elected leaders, what's something else that they could say? Yeah, although I, my brain struggles to figure out how they jump from merely that to authority. But um, if you think about science, what would, what would somebody from a, a Darwinistic religion say about authority? Okay, it evolved, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. You, you, you're, you're pushing us to the finish line. Yeah. I think the survival of the fittest. Okay, yeah, so you're saying evolving, survival of the fittest goes right along with that. Now explain what you mean, Audrey. Well, I think there's an idea that authority must be earned. Nobody, nothing is created with authority. Nothing is created without authority. Okay, yeah, so I think that this would be, I, there's probably more, a lot more ideologies about authority out there in the world, but I think one that comes fairly quick to all of our minds is this idea of like might makes right, like whoever, survival of the fittest, what Audrey's saying, whoever has enough power has the authority, right? Whoever grabs it and can handle it, wields it, right? Like, um, this is not what the scripture teaches about where authority finds its origin. The secular view of authority robs God of the glory that is due him, while, on the other hand, King David, one of the greatest kings to ever live, you want to talk about earthly political authority, is beside himself with wonder and amazement. How could such a glorious, powerful, wonderful God share his authority with such sinful men, with such a sinful man as him? Think about David's words. What is man that you consider him? What is man that you're mindful of him? And yet you've made him a little lower than God. Right? Hebrews, the point of Hebrews was to say that Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man. Whereas David is speaking in the opposite direction and saying, what is man that, that you've made him a little lower than God? Right? When we were out <clears throat> west a few weeks ago, one of the things we wanted to do Twelve years ago, on our first vacation, before we had Micaiah, was go up way into Canada and go to, you know, there's areas that have the least light pollution in the general region or in the continent. You know what I'm talking about. Very, very little light pollution. You can, you can see maybe the Aurora Borealis. You can see the Milky Way. We didn't do it twelve years ago. And we've always sort of regretted not going. So when we were out near Bryce Canyon, there again is, is in one of the state parks is a really, really dark area. There's a lot of great places to look at the stars out there. But one of my most, I was telling Aaliyah, one of my most enjoyable memories, I think, of this trip is we were all crammed into the Grand Junction Motel. 
about ready to go to sleep, and Aaliyah, the kids are, you know, just getting ready to brush their teeth, and it's like 9 o'clock, we're tired. Aaliyah says, you know, I sure would like to go look at the stars, and in the moment, I thought, all right, but we did it. We had all the kids brush their teeth and get ready for bed, and then we said, out to the van, and we went out to the van, and we drove 15, 20 minutes into the middle of this um, state park near Bryce Canyon, and it was pitch black. And we drove in a little, quite a ways into the park. I parked the car right in the middle of the road, turned off the headlights, called the kids to get out. We all got out, and we laid in the road and looked at the stars. And it, was, it, was, it wouldn't strike me maybe in the moment, but since going on that trip, I've thought that is a wonderful memory that I'll always remember. Me, Ali and, and me, uh, laying in the middle of the road with all our kids laying around us in their pajamas, looking up at the stars and doing some singing. And that's one of those times, you know, I thought about Psalm 8, and I thought about that time. You're looking at the stars. We saw the Milky Way, just the right across the sky. And you think about God's glory, you think about his power, you think about... And then you think about the fact that he's made me a father to these little children. And why? Why would he do that? Well, for his glory, right? Praise God. Praise God. When we think about authority, we should always be led to think on God and to praise him. We shouldn't think about power and authority outside of the God who gives all power and authority. Okay. So, we were created in the image of God. He shares authority with us. Authority is woven into the fabric of who we are. We cannot escape it. We said that at the beginning. This applies in all of life, but this morning with the remaining time, we're going to think about how it applies to the church. God has always appointed leaders amongst his people to shepherd and care for his people, for their needs. He has always done it. There has never been a time in the history of God's people where there's been no authority ruling over them. In the Old Testament, what did it look like? Well, it looked like in the beginning... The patriarchs, right? God came to a man and said, I'm calling you out of your homeland to a country that you don't know. And initially, at that early stage, it looked like him and his children and those that became part of his household. And then we know that that was passed on, Isaac, and then to Jacob. And the families are growing all throughout this time. You with me? The family of of Abraham is getting larger. Then you have the whole saga with Joseph and his brothers casting him out, and he ends up in, uh, in jail in Egypt eventually. And then he rises to power because of God's favor and God giving Joseph authority in that time to care for his brothers and for his father. Joseph is told there's going to be famine, and so Pharaoh exalts him and puts him in a place of, of power. And, he, and, and, and the Bible says that there was nothing that Pharaoh held back from Joseph in all of Egypt. And so then we know that a little later, it skips some time, and they're there for a long time, and and we're told, the scripture says, there arose a new king who didn't know Joseph. And then we have the, the saga of the Egyptians in Egypt as slaves, and then we get into the story of Moses' deliverance of the people. Okay, you with me? This is the, this is the flow of the story of the Old Testament, God's people throughout the Old Testament. But there's never a time when God's people 
do not have specific authorities given to, by God to them for their good and for their instruction. Um, <clears throat> after Pharaoh, there was Moses. I'm skipping to Moses. and um, Moses reminds me, when I think about Moses, I, I am reminded a lot of the work of eldership, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And he reminds me of eldership. For his life reminds me of the life of a, of a godly good elder for three reasons. One, because his entire life was given to it. He could have had, you know, the house of Pharaoh. He could have chosen that life. He gives up that life and gives the rest of his life. And I know he was with Laban, and you know, there's, but he gives his life to leading God's people in the wilderness. It's a calling. It's not a nine-to-five job. It's not something on the side. It's not just an accolade, you know, somewhere below his life. That is his life. It's the, the chief calling of his life is to lead God's people through the wilderness. The second reason that Moses reminds me of eldership is that uh, we, we are told that he was a judge. You remember? His father-in-law comes to him and says, you're going to wear yourself out. You're judging, you're having to listen to so many different items that come by your lap, come across your proverbial desk, you know. You're going to wear yourself out. You're not going to be any good for yourself. You're not going to be any good for the people. So he says, bring in others to help you in this work. And so there is, there's that story from the life of Moses. And the work of eldership, at its essence, at its core, is the work of making judgments. That is, it's not to just you know, say where we're going in five years or to think about what the building should look like or whether to mow the lawn this way or to plant this, you know, all that may be a part of it, but the, the real nature of the work of eldership is to make judgments for the good of the church and for the glory of God. Does that make sense? Does that make sense, Stella? Sarah? Cohen? No, you're not Cohen. <sighs> I had Cohen, I always confuse the two of you. I had Cohen sitting at my dining room table last week and Sorry, you were out of town. Where were you? St. Louis. Is what I'm saying making sense? Okay. All right. The third way in which Moses reminds me of eldership is that actually he, he did serve as a priest. Hebrews 3, we're going to get into this uh, very soon. Numbers 12, v- verse 7. I don't, that is not on your sheet, but uh, there is a, a spot on the outline for Moses. Then after Moses, you have Aaron. Aaron and the priesthood. They were called to serve in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And this gives way eventually to the New Testament church. Okay? Where there is no longer the need for a physical temple where God dwells. We heard about that last week in the sermon. The, 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 The veil is torn when Christ dies. And there's no longer a need for the physical temple where God dwells. And there is no longer a need for priests to make sacrifices as an atonement for sin because Christ's death was the once-for-all sacrifice for all of the sin of mankind. So things shift and begin to, to change a bit in the New Testament. And yet, the idea that God gives leaders with authority to His people for their good, for their purity, and for God's glory does not change. It's the same. 
The fact that we no longer need human priests to mediate, because we do have a priest. What's his name? Jesus. We no longer, the fact that we don't need human priests to mediate and the fact that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us does not mean, as some would argue, that there is no need for authorities in the church today. I want to read to you from Matthew 16. This is right before... Um, well, I'll just, I'll just get into it. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Then he goes on to say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Notice, he's saying this to Peter. He's not saying this to somebody who comes to him for healing. All right? He's saying this to, his, to an apostle, to Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now Jesus spoke these words not long before he went to Jerusalem and would be crucified. And what is abundantly clear from the text is that, one, the church is Jesus' church. It's not the apostles' church. It's not the disciples' church. It's not the congregation's church. It's Christ's church. You're now going to, you're going to be called Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Also, Jesus builds the church, and as he does this, he shares the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the authority, with Peter and with those that follow after him. The apostles, then through the many words of Paul to the elders in the churches that he begins all throughout the New Testament. He's giving his authority to men, and not to all men, but to specific men, to lead the church. This is, the fa- this is a foundational text as we think about the roles of elders and the authority and the work of the church. Okay. Now, as you know, we are, as a church, Presbyterian, which means elder-ruled. Elder-ruled. That's what Presbyterian means. And for those of you, I, I look out today and I see some that have grown up here or are growing up here in this church where the idea of eldership may seem typical or common or just the most normal thing. Like, that is the normal thing. But the idea of eldership in a church shouldn't just be taken for granted. Can any of you think of other types of systems of rule in the church? Other types of oversight? Today, historically? Uh, Congregationalism. Congregationalism, okay. Does anybody know anything about, generally speaking, congregationalism? Anyone? They, okay, so she says they vote for everything, right? And there are certain things we vote for, right? We as a church do elect our elders, but in electing our elders, we are putting them in authority over us, right? Congregationalist churches, uh, yes, they vote for everything. Does anyone want to add anything to that or s- sort of summarize the congregationalist position simply? 
Mr. James, you want to have a... It's what? Every, okay, so everything is put to vote in the congregation. Were you, gonna, were you raising your hand or flicking your wrist? So everything is put to vote before the congregation. Okay, what's another system? Yep, yep. So that would fall under, like, a, um, I think it would fall under, the, like, an Episcopal-type system where you have overseers, right? The form of government where a, a, a one singular leader, often called a bishop, uh, rules over other hierarchies of authority down underneath him. So the Roman Catholic Church would be an example of that type of system. The Pope is the bishop of Rome, right? Um, and then you get out of formal, and I recognize there's a, lot of, there's a lot of maybe congregational churches that do have specific leaders that have functions. Like there's a lot of, uh, what would you say, um, we're going with super big categories here, right? And we're being very general, okay? Um, then what might another system of rule be in a church? Maybe not one with a title like, um, like Episcop Episcopal or, or Presbyterian. What might something else be? Okay, that, 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 there are a lot of churches where that is a, a guy with a heart for the Lord starts a church, doesn't, and he, he starts it, and he's the guy, and he has friends in the church, but there really isn't, there's probably a lot of churches where men who love the Lord and have good churches lead it that way, but it is, there's no system around him. There are obviously abuses of that system as well, where it becomes a celebrity type deal, or, you know, we could go there. It, there's, there's all sorts of churches in between. Okay, yeah, thanks. What, what's another type? There's many churches today that aren't denominational that have some sort of boards, but they function more like some other types of nonprofits or more like businesses, right? So that there's, there's oversight in some ways, but it's not spiritual oversight. It's, it's sort of the pragmatic oversight. Those are the general types I have thought of. Um, you know, I was talking with, uh, my point is here, we as a church um, can't take eldership for granted. And it is taught in the Bible. We're going to look at some verses in here in a second. But there's all sorts of types of oversight in various churches. And, um, you know, I was talking with a friend at the, at the, con at the uh, conference, and he said that, He's really excited. It's a big time in the life of the church because after eight years of teaching, they're going to try to change their bylaws to bring in elders. This is a huge deal for the church. I'm trying to say that for those of us that may be, be here, el this idea of eldership isn't always readily accepted or assumed, okay? Eight years of work and preaching and teaching toward the idea of changing the bylaws to allow for eldership. And they're really excited about that. I was talking with another, well, I wasn't, my wife was, and she told me, she's talking with another friend who's a pastor, and tragically, they said, our church might be splitting. The church might be splitting? Why? Well, there's a vote on the roof. We need a new roof. And half the church wants a new roof, and the other church thinks the shingles will last, and we're just going to ride it out. And there's a vote on Wednesday, and it may be a split. 
Now, uh, you know, that, bad things happen in all types of churches, but that's a tragic uh, thing to be looking down the barrel of as a church, right? Over a roof, over shingles. That, what kind of church polity would that be? Church vote on that. That would be congregational, right? Congregational. Um, <clears throat> okay. There are many passages in the New Testament that talk about elders and their work in the church. And I'd like to read just a few passages to us, and I'd like you to listen. And as I read, I want you to think about what, what the passage I just read teaches us about the role and the work of a pastor. So I'm going to read a passage. I want you to listen. What does it teach us about the role or the work of the pastor or the elder? And then let me know what you think. Okay, so first, Acts 20. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the flock, the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. I acknowledge that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. Okay, what does that verse teach us about the role or the work of those in eldership? Okay, protection? Yep. Great, thank you. Thank you, Linda. Any other idea? Any other things we learned from that passage? Okay, guidance, protection, yes, they're both, those are both correct. And I'm going to keep us moving, and so I'm going to, those two things are, are correct, and they're in the text. There's also something else, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. So it also teaches you, it's not the guy who has the strongest voice. It's not the guy who owns a company that's making, you know, over a million dollars a year. It might be, it may not be. It's those to whom the Holy Spirit appoints to the work, okay? From Acts chapter 14. When Paul and Barnabas had had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What does it teach us about the work, the role of elders? Okay, I'll just tell you. When Paul and Barnabas had appointed elders for them in every church, in every church, Paul didn't go around starting churches and then, you know, want to be, have his influence and authority maintained. So he, you know, he, he said, hey, you know, if you have any questions, make sure to email me. I really want to stay connected in the loop here. He appointed elders in every church. So if you think about church plants, in the time of a church plant, that plant gets help from other elders from different churches that are, t- that are committed to the helping that plant. When that church is to the point where they can sustain themselves, it's not just financial, it's also sustain themselves spiritually, they, they become a particularized and they have elders in that church. So every church Paul went to, he wanted to establish elders in. Every church should have elders. Okay, another one from Titus. Namely, if a man is above reproach, the husband, this is speaking to the qualifications, if a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, 
having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be, a, uh, must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Okay, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And there's more than one passage that talk about the qualifications for eldership. And you could do a lot more time on any of these topics we're just sort of bouncing off of like a ping pong ball. But what we learn from this passage is the type of man that we should be elected, that should be elected, his character and his ability, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So it speaks to his character, but it also speaks to the work that he will be doing as an elder. Do you see that? It doesn't just say he should be peaceable, faithful. It says so that all of these things are qualifications for the purpose of him being able to exhort in sound doctrine and able to refute those who contradict. Another passage, 1 Peter. Therefore I exhort the elders among you. This is 1 Peter 5, 1-7. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and, the, and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Okay, so here we have more qualifications for the purpose of being a faithful example to the flock and shepherding the flock well. So to recap where we've been, we've said all authority comes from God, He shared it with men. God has always established those in authority to care for his people, to protect the purity of his people, Old, New Testament alike. And we've started discussing some uh, things pertaining to elders from the New Testament, from what we're told. Elders are elevated to a place of authority by the Holy Spirit. They are to be sought in each church. They are to be qualified. And there's a whole list, type, many different types of qualifications for the purpose of teaching and exhorting and refuting and judging and shepherding. All those things. And those things all overlap. All right. So now we're going to pivot and turn, and we're going to talk uh, about uh, something that flows out of authority. Uh, How do they do all these things we've just talked about, the elders doing? Um, Well, over the past couple of weeks, we have talked about the power of the Word of God. Jonathan started by teaching us about that, and about the sacraments. And interestingly enough, these are two of the three marks of a church. Well, what's the marks of a church and who made them? The marks of a church came about in the time of the Reformers. The Reformers said that the true church is not to be marked by certain things, particularly 
not to be marked by submission to the supposedly infallible Pope. Right? Think about the time in which they lived. The true church was the church that bowed the knee to, to the Pope in Rome. The reformers came along and said, no, that is not the mark of a true church. So what is the mark of a true church? Well, it's founded on the word solo scriptura, right? The, the scripture alone. But then they also said that there were three things. The word, which we already talked about, thanks, Jonathan. The, the right administration of the sacraments. And does anyone know the third mark of a church that became well-known? Pardon me? Okay, so discipline, right? Discipline. Discipline flows out of authority. You can't, you know, when I, I have every right to spank my child, and I do when they need it. When I go away, when Lee and I go on a date, and we leave Micaiah in charge, we do give him some of our authority, but it is limited. <laughs> he isn't able to discipline the kids like I am, right? But discipline always flows out from a place of authority. So, <clears throat> it is the work um, of the church elders to carry out faithful preaching of the Word of God, right administration of the sacraments, and discipline in the church. Now, when you hear the word or words, church discipline, what might you think of? What do you think of? Somebody being excommunicated. Okay, so AJ just took the... Uh, the elevator all the way to the top floor of the Sears Tower and says, church excommunication. Okay? That, that, that is a part of discipline. What else do you think of when you hear the words church discipline? What else? Yeah, Linda? Reproof, counseling. Okay, what else? Sin. Okay. Often, it, it, all of discipline is a result of our sin. Not all discipline is, is an immediate result, a response to sin. We'll talk about that more in just a second. What else do you think of? Anything else? Tim, were you going to say something, or were you just clearing your throat? Okay. Clearing your throat. All right, so <clears throat> one thing that we need to point out with the five minutes that we have left is that if you look at your outlines, there's, I've, I've, said, I've listed two types of discipline. And I think it's important that we keep this in mind. We often think that of discipline in the sense that a, that a child thinks of discipline. When I go to Micaiah and say, you're going to be disciplined, right? It's, that's a code word for you're going to be punished, right? Um, but there are all sorts of positive disciplines as well in family life, in church life. There are all sorts of positives, and you, you look at the, the, what I put down on the outline, preventative discipline and prescriptive. So when you are sick, the doctor writes you a prescription. That's a reaction to something. You've got a cold or strep throat, and he gives you some, a Z-pack or something, right? That's a prescription. You've got a problem. It's manifest in a very particular way, and now here, this, right? Preventative, what's preventative maintenance on a car? That's a racket. No, I'm just easy. <laughs> Preventative maintenance is changing your brakes before you go on a 5,000-mile trip so that on the way down the Rockies, you don't smell burning and start, you know, you need to utilize one of those semi-runaway ramps, right? You do it beforehand, and it's good. It's not the response to something. Um, what might be positive discipline? What might be a positive discipline, Wolfgang? 
Who can help him out? What's a positive discipline? Becca. Okay, encouragement. Encouragement. I think that that's great. Yeah. Do I positively, do I encourage my children to, through, do I discipline my children through encouragement? Do you think you can do that? Is that a new thought? Yeah. We, I, I, I seek to encourage my children all the time. It is a discipline for me as a parent to encourage my child, right? I have to, but I'm also shaping them through encouragement, right? Doesn't God do that with us? Doesn't he encourage us in many ways? It's not always just reaction. Okay, what else? Ben looks like he's just eating something gross. Maybe that means he doesn't agree. What other things might be positive disciplines? Proactive disciplines. What? Preaching of the word, right? Okay. That can often be pre- pre- uh, preventative, right? Sometimes it's in reaction to something very specific. But our hope is that it's preventing people. The, the, most of Scripture's commands are preventative. Not just, oh, you did this and now here's the, all the steps you need to get out of it. Okay, what else? Okay, setting boundaries. Um, could be one, yeah. Are there other things? Could be the. Yeah. I'm thinking about it now, but could be the friends you encourage, you love, go to encouragement, but the people you let them spend time with or tell them they should spend time with? Or okay, it can be those that you surround yourself with. Some and of the judgment calls you make about, you like saying, oh yeah, these, these kids are really great, we really like them, and kind of steering them towards. That could be, yeah, that could be saying, I want you to have friendships with these children. It's not disciplining them for hanging out with their own children. It's proactively pushing them in the right direction, right? You recognize we do this all the time. That's what I think of positive discipline. We're, we're pushing them in the right direction, not just, you know, disciplining them in a, in a punitive way for going in a bad direction, okay? Um, this is really important in family life as fathers and mothers, it's very important in church life. This is the work of elders. Much of the discipline. Is it a discipline to commit to going through small group every year like we do? Right? Do the elders want us to do that? Why? To grow and to be encouraged and for many reasons that are beneficial, not just as a reaction against something. All right? Okay, so there's, also, there's also the other type of discipline. Um, and the BCO, which is our Book of Church Order, puts it this way. It says that uh, there are two senses of discipline. He uses, the, they, they use the word senses. One referring to all the government, the training, the guardianship, the control over a church. The second is restricted and technical, and it signifies a judicial process. So there is discipline in the sense of, A.J. mentioned excommunication, which is a, a final step of discipline that elders may take after a long periods of other types of discipline, okay? There's scripture for these as well. Um, let me just read to us from Matthew 18. This is, this is the, the classic text that talks to us about how you handle sin amongst brothers and in the church. If your brother sins, go and show him his faults in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen, take two or three more with you 
so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Take your, the issue to the church, the authority of the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him beat you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, that's casting them out so that their soul might be saved from hell through being cast out. That's, that is the, the work of the church at its end stage with somebody who is hardened to repentance. Um, it's, it's, yes? I just was going to say, I remember talking to Matt McClavick about it. Speak up so everybody can hear. I remember talking to Matt McClavick, I don't know if he's up here, about nope. excommunication, and he was just saying that it is really in the case where they, they, they're basically taking themselves out. Like, it's long, like you're saying, periods. Well, well correct. There's me, many, there's many no things re- that come before right. you and deal with it. they're not repentant. They're not, like, they're not even confessing what they're doing is sin or seeing it as sin at all. They're not turning to God at all. Yes, okay. Like, they're on their way out. I, yeah. I just think, I think everybody's gone to church before, but, like, it's not something that you, the church goes to, like, right away. It is, like, this person right. is... Is, it's is not something that church goes to immediately. Or that you want to do it all. You don't want right. to do it, but you'll do it if that's what's right and honoring to God. That's true. Um, there are other po- places in the scripture that speak to this idea of eventually having to let somebody go from the church, right? Titus, the factious man, have nothing to do with. Um, this is, this is the, the end stage of that prescriptive type of discipline that the, is part of the work of the elders. But I'm trying to say here, the work of the elders, they do have authority. They're called to, dis, to the to discipline in the church, and yet there's many, many types of discipline, and we should not be narrow in our view of what the discipline is. We should see it in all the manifestations that it is. Yeah. Absolutely. Repentance. That's right, and we have had some of the greatest joys in this church have actually been seeing men removed from the church through excommunication and then come back in repentance. It's the sweetest thing to experience. Yeah, Jeremy? Exactly. Yes. Um, he's pointing out that the man in Corinthians is restored, right? Okay, so we're out of time. Um, how would I summarize what we've gone through? I think the takeaways that I want us to all r- remember are the fact that eldership, authority in the church, is biblical. There are those that say it's not. It's biblical. It comes from God. Um, Authority in the church is seen in the preaching and the sacraments and in the discipline. But then I wanted to crack open discipline like a coconut and say, listen, it's not just excommunication. You say, oh, church discipline. That is, I'm not diminishing that, but that is not the only thing that is a part of church discipline. All right? I wanted to broaden our scope and recognize there's many things that the elders do for us that are positive as well as those that are prescriptive and reactionary to some individual type of sin or condition or circumstance. Does that make sense? And finally, I just want us to, and actually I want to say as a pastor, I know you're grateful for the work of the elders. And it's wonderful to be in a church where people are grateful for the work of the elders. And we don't take it for granted. We praise God for it. 
but to also encourage all of us to be thankful for the work of eldership. It's a beautiful thing, and it shouldn't be taken for granted. If we had more time, I was going to talk about how Johannes Oka, uh, how do you say his last name? Oka, uh, Oka, Rush, you know it? Oka Palladius? 1500s reformer, actually in Basel, Switzerland, went to the city council and went to the church and started petitioning for eldership again, because if you think about it, eldership disappeared within decades after the New Testament church as the Church of Rome started to grow and they started making other type of structures. So we have this, it's biblical, um, we appreciate it, be grateful for it, and I know you are, and I, so I'm humbled by that, and I'm, I'm grateful to, to be in a church like this. Okay, let's pray, and I'm going to ask Drew to stand with a loud voice and pray. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.